Hey everyone, I am your host, Eric Mueller, and welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, the podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's dinner clock tick. What has been your most challenging moment during the COVID-19 pandemic? What lessons have you learned along the way? Also, are you curious why we aren't talking about how COVID-19 started? Today, I'm joined by the creators of the Healing American Healthcare Coalition. John Dalton and Ed Eichhorn have 100 years of collective healthcare experience between the two of them, and they're the co-authors of Healing American Healthcare, Lessons from the Pandemic. Their book takes readers on a roller coaster ride through the worst global pandemic in more than a century. From New Year's Eve 2019 through September 21, 2021, America's death toll surpassed that of the 1918 to 1919 influenza pandemic. The book portrays the COVID-19 pandemic's devastating impact through the eyes of the journalists who reported on it. Let's head on over to the interview. All right, welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, the podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's dinner clock tick. Now, I'm happy to be bringing on two guests for this installment of the show, John Dalton and Ed Eichhorn. Both are healthcare experts, and their recent book explores the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on America's healthcare systems. Now, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ed earlier this year to discuss his first book, and you might recall the healthcare plan that would save the U.S. $1 trillion per year. Now, if you missed that one or are new to the show, be sure to check out episode 35. John, welcome to the show. And Ed, welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you both here today. Great to be with you. Thanks, Eric. Good to meet you. Yeah, it, man, this is exciting because, I mean, we're in real time here. This is June 22. At least I feel we're getting to the point where the pandemic is in the rearview mirror. But your book, is it's looking at the lessons that we've learned from this pandemic and, and where do we go so guys, where, where does America go from here? Just broadly, like what is the biggest piece of advice that you can offer an American post-pandemic? Have a thought, John, or do you want me to start? <laughs> well, I, there, there's several, but uh, to, to me, one of the mo most pressing issues is the problem of clinician burnout. Uh, we know that 60% of nurses are reporting symptoms of burnout. Uh, Medscape did a, uh, their annual re review report last year uh, emergency room physicians were at the top of the heap with 60% reporting symptoms of burnout with the imminent physician shortage and nurse shortage coming uh, the more people burn out uh, the more who's going to be there to take care of the baby boomers and gen x uh, i think ed and i are probably safe uh, at our advanced ages but we need more folks coming into the field and we need to find ways to deal practically uh, with burnout symptoms. Uh, critical care physicians also were up in the top. Uh, infectious disease physicians. Surprisingly, the least susceptible to burnout was the lowest paid specialty, and that's uh, preventive medicine and uh, public health. But uh, to me, that is, in, at the top of my mind, that's the most burning issue that America needs to deal with in the next several years. Ed, what's yours? Well, you know, I think the thing that we have to do is we have to trust our uh, public health officials. 
And um, during the pandemic that uh, we hope is almost over, many of our health, uh, public health officials uh, burned out. Uh, people didn't want to listen to what would actually help them, especially before there was a vaccine. Um, there was a recent article that John and I have been talking about that compared the United States with Australia. And if we were able to follow the Australians' efforts uh, in America, we could have saved 900,000 lives. And that's an, a horrible thing to think about. But basically what they did was they uh, accepted the public health official advice. They wore masks. They actually trusted each other with respect to uh, their health system. And when the vaccine became available, um, they were willing to get vaccinated. And, you know, we all we all love our personal freedom in the United States to make our own choices. And we should still be able to do that. But but we really ought to listen to public health officials when it uh, when we have to deal with a crisis uh, like uh, like the Ebola uh, crisis of a few years ago or swine flu or, or any of them. So so my hope would be that we be would be able to accept what science tells us about what to do to maintain our health during difficult times. Yeah, very well stated on both those points. And I think it it brings up the topic in my mind in, in regard to the way we deliver messages about healthcare issues. So you have, you know, the general public, there's all sorts of knowledge levels on healthcare. So, I mean, you have some people that have PhDs, MDs, PharmDs, you know, master's degrees, MPH, any types of degrees, I mean, they have a higher level of understanding on some things. But the one thing most people can agree on, most likely, is that we saw a lot of polarized opinions regarding COVID-19 vaccinations, wearing masks, social distancing, what have you. Do you think that, that we need to change the way that we introduce and communicate healthcare topics to the American public going forward? Is there is there a way to to think about it differently? Because I, I want to say, you know, it's it's maybe a little bit like it's not what you say, but how you say it, because the end result is you'd suggest they get vaccinated. But should we have gone about that differently, do you think? You know, I think when um, the vaccines were coming available, um, the administration that uh, actually, you know, saw that through so that the vaccines could be developed quickly, uh, didn't do any uh, public service announcements. They uh, didn't advertise the fact that they were getting vaccinated to the public. You know, to to say that, um, you know, this is really a good thing and I'm doing it, you know, and um, our our past president uh, uh, got vaccinated very quietly, uh, you know, after he had been sick with the virus. And, you know, I, I think uh, public officials in some ways have to please, uh, you know, do as I do. <laughs> if, if, if the vaccine is a good thing and I get it, I should show you that I got it. And um you know, in the metropolitan area where John and I live, um, for a long time, there have been a lot of public service announcements by medical leaders, by mayors, um, you know, by people who are respected in the local mm -hmm. press uh, to say, you know, I got vaccinated. You want to get vaccinated, too. Why not? Well, why not protect yourself uh, from this virus? And I think uh, because there was no. Um, start of that uh, in the previous administration, um, when President Biden came in, uh, he had to make up a lot of ground rapidly to try to help Americans to uh, see the uh, merits of the uh, vaccination. And for that reason, I think there were a lot of mixed messages. Yeah, I'm a few years older than Ed, and I can recall as a child, uh, polio was a uh, 
a raging disease and a, a but it had been around for quite a while. And when the Salk vaccine came in, I can remember standing in line to get it. All of us did. There was still an undercurrent of anti-vaxxers or anti-vaccine messages, but not to the extent that you see it today. A couple of mitigating factors, polio had been around for a long time and it was a feared disease. Uh, COVID-19 all of a sudden popped up. People quickly forgot, except for the Pacific Rim countries, that this was just the next version of SARS. We were lucky. SARS was an epidemic. It didn't become a pandemic. Uh, the messaging could have been better. The mes- as Ed cited, the messaging we've seen, particularly from the New York City Department of Health, uh, has been consistent, clear, compelling, uh, and in language that the public can understand. Yeah. Yes. In, in, in a number of cases, as they heard information that the public was concerned about, like, should I get my child vaccinated? Mm-hmm. Uh, people from, uh, you know, the uh, medical director for New York City uh, or New York State uh, or New Jersey would get on TV and say, I got my child vaccinated and they're fine. And you should consider getting yours vaccinated as well. And they and they pre-sold the idea of getting children between the ages of six months and five years vaccinated as those vaccines become available. So you know, there are always gonna be people, as John said, that aren't interested in, in, in this or concerned about uh, vaccination or anti-vaxxers, uh, but you know, we need to let the truth come out and, and let people make decisions about real, true, accurate information. Yeah, another aspect of that also is that uh, people don't understand viruses. This virus is a particularly vicious one. Viruses do, they have no brains, they're not political, they just find Petri dishes to mutate in. Uh, So part of the confusion in the public has been, well, we have a COVID-19 pandemic, why can't we fix it? Uh, But we're dealing with a whole different set of variants and subvariants today than we were back in uh, February, March, April of 2020. I'm not sure that there's any easy way to get that messaging across to the general public in terms of how viruses behave. But the, the less you have as a percentage of the population vaccinated, the more opportunities that viruses have to do what viruses do, mutate and become uh, more contagious, uh, sometimes more severe. Uh, I don't have a real good answer for that one. One out of five people get long COVID. And our healthcare providers are struggling to try to figure out how to treat them because, you know, this virus enters through, you know, our taking a breath and it comes in, gets into your lungs, and it can go anywhere in your body. And that's why long COVID can be foggy thinking because it can, um, this virus um, can get through the brain barrier. So, uh, you can have foggy thinking. You can have people who are unable to exercise. You have some people that get kidney failure. Uh, and, and sometimes the symptoms uh, will be there for a while and go away. Sometimes long COVID occurs and it shows up in people who had no symptoms at all. So, you know, uh, to me, um, although, you know, some people are, are very willing to take the risk, I think there's a long-term risk available that people need to be more aware of. And, and um, you know, long COVID is, uh, as John said, it, it does not discriminate. You could be very healthy and get it, or you could be someone with pre-existing conditions uh, and, and get long COVID. So, um, you know, that's my concern is how do we uh, treat the people who uh, are uh, saddled with this device, a disease rather, and um, move forward in a way that helps them to recover from, from this uh, 
difficult to diagnose and treat condition. Yeah, I think that that was at least one of my major concerns early on was the long-term effects if I were to get infected. And to my knowledge, I've, I have never had it. So I will not know now I'm vaccinated. Can't do the antigen test now to tell that. But but that I think a lot of people share that is they don't want to have persisting effects, especially if they're perfectly healthy, so to speak. And you know, you have some long-lasting cardio or long-lasting heart damage and you know something is, is wrong with your lungs. I think everybody wants to avoid that. But kind of building off of this this question, guys, is I think misinformation was like one of the biggest problems that happened throughout the course of the pandemic. And people had no idea what they could trust. They they had a lot of difficulty in in finding information that was reliable. You know, there's a certain political aspect that the, the people that are in leadership in the, in the country, like even, now, you know, you, we, we flipped parties during the pandemics. I mean, there's there's it's coming at it from every angle. So how does someone know what to, to look for and how to trust you know, like a, an un, unbiased source, so to speak. Just avoid watching Fox News and Tucker Carlson. That's uh, uh, the, the disinformation that has been spread through some of those channels is just appalling. Uh, we have a friend who has lupus. When Trump proclaimed that hydroxychloroquine was the uh, remedy, she had difficulty getting medication. And here's someone who's immunocompromised. Uh, sheltering in place for many, many months during the early stages of the pandemic, uh, who then, thanks to the former president, uh, had difficulty getting the appropriate medications to deal with lupus. As questions arise about these confusing messages, uh, like uh, you know, taking a veterinary medicine uh, to treat COVID, or the one that John just spoke about, yeah. I think the best thing people should do is to speak to their physician. Or, or to uh, you know, seek medical advice from a reliable uh, professional. Um, perhaps there's a nurse in their family, or or they have a family physician they can go to to say, should I do this or should I do that? Right. What do you recommend? Because if you do have a family physician, you know they have your medical records and and they can look at your you know whatever you've dealt with in your life to see if uh, a vaccine is appropriate or not, or you know answer questions about. Uh, uh, the fears or concerns you have about uh, the possibilities of uh, doing things to avoid this particular illness. Yeah, and I think it, I think a piece to mention here too, and check the show notes for their book. So, Healing American Healthcare. It's a two part two part book. You learned about the first book when I spoke with Ed on episode thirty five, and this one we're dealing with the second part. And so Ed had had two different co authors here. So John helped write the second book. And I think a piece that before you dive into it, what you should know is that they published together through the Healing American Healthcare Coalition, a, a three minute read newsletter that comes out a few times per month. Um, you can subscribe for only $12 a year. And they basically summarize articles and, and important pieces of information that are happening at that moment. And this book, The Lessons from the Pandemic, is a collection of those reviews. So in real time, you're getting a snapshot of what their thoughts were at that present moment. And I think that's really useful looking back to see what, you know, what you learned. Cause I mean, if you look back to an issue that happened in April of 2020, your, your perspective now is so much different because you know so much more. And I'm curious to ask both you guys, is there a time where you just had that kind of aha moment where you were just shocked that you were even writing this while you were doing those, those newsletters? You're like, I can't even believe I'm writing about this topic because three years ago, I never would have imagined that. Well, it was Ed who had the vision uh, last summer, July or August. Uh, he looked back at the newsletters that we had published and said, you know, what we've got here is an ongoing real-time history 
of what happened during this pandemic. Maybe if we sorted out and looked at it in various categories like insurers, providers, pharmaceuticals, uh, we may leave a track record behind that future researchers can get into. And as I said in the ebook, they can go in there and link to various sources because basically we've, we've reported through the eyes of the journalists uh, who wrote about it. Uh, so that, I think, uh, he saw that and we decided to do the book and we decided upon an end date for the, the, that particular topic. The end date was September 21st. That was the date on which the deaths, deaths from the current pandemic exceeded those of the 1918-19 Spanish flu pandemic. Well, you know, uh, the newsletter um, is something that I, I'm uh, passionate about because uh, we have a lot of friends that work in healthcare. They, they uh, you know, manage um, departments in hospitals or they're hospital CEOs or they are physicians who are uh, in very busy practice. And there are many, many sources uh, that, that we learn through this uh, um, exercise uh, where you can read about healthcare. Uh, I believe so far we've quoted more than 70 different sources uh, in yes. in our newsletter, and so what we do is uh, we um, write this uh, brief newsletter. We pick the articles we think that would be of most interest from all those sources, and um, you know we re- write about them a couple of times a month. And we'll we'll publish uh, five or six article summaries in each newsletter with our thoughts based on our years of experience about um, you know what's being reported. And so our our goal there was to provide very busy professionals with something they can look at once in a while uh, to get an idea of what the most important topics were during that time period. And we've gotten some reasonably good feedback uh, about that. And our uh, newsletter opening rate has always been pretty high. Um, Nationally, the average newsletter opening rate is uh, 8 to 12%, I believe. Uh, Our newsletter opening rate uh, has been uh, 45 to 75 percent, um, you know, over the time we published it, and the click-through rate has been very high as well, and, and is normally uh, between 12 and 20 percent. So, um, you know, that tells us that the people who read our newsletter, I want to get some information. They want to get it quickly, and they want to get a good sense of it. And we we want to do this in a way um, that is objective. We. We have no bias in this. We are looking at the news that's being reported and we're commenting on it, but uh, we are not coming uh, to this from uh, uh, one extreme or the other. Yeah. And and people listening, if you're in healthcare, you definitely want to read this because I mean, it is fast. You can, you can skim through a lot of great stories in three minutes. I mean, I, I think that's, if you're drinking your cup of coffee in the morning, read it before you go to work. If you're in nursing or if you're a medical doctor, if you're in pharmacy, but even if you're not and you want to stay on top of, you know, pertinent issues in healthcare, which you probably should if you want to remain living a good life, you're really going to want this. So I'll, I'll tag in the in the show notes for sure how to access that. And on top of that, with this book, I, I think it's it's just crucial that you tie it all together. Kind of, you know, so you summarize the stories real time and you you added those in when you were you were uh, comprising this book. But near the end of the book, you you share kind of the overall commentary on the lessons that we've learned. And, you know, what do we glean going forward? How do we know how to stave off a future pandemic or how to, you know, navigate a future crisis in, in the country, so to speak? Is there one or, or a few of those lessons that are that just stand out to you as super important that, that we need to talk about now? 
because obviously they can read the book and they can see all the details on all of them. But is there anything that that piqued your interest that you think you want them to know about right now? Yeah, the uh, and, and we, we're seeing it on a continuing basis. We saw it most recently with the Abbott baby formula debacle. Oh, yeah. That has a multiple dimensions, one of which is that our criteria through the FDA are stricter than most of the rest of the world. So even though you can get safe baby formula in the UK, France, Germany, Australia, et cetera, uh, our regimen is very strict. However, uh, enforcement was lacking. Uh, the, to me, one of the other critical issues is we've offshored so much in the last 40 years that we are now, and we saw that with the PPE back at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we could not get it from China because they were reserving it for themselves. Uh, there are so many aspects and dimensions to that. To me, one of the tragedies of that is so many small American businesses stepped up. They pivoted. They changed their production lines so they could produce face shields. They could produce masks uh, for us. And what's happened now? Well, now that the supply chain is reopened, they've all been ditched by, uh, by their customers. Uh, to me, that's a shame. Uh, we need to be more onshore, particularly with the critical supply elements. Uh, right now, you can't do a CAT scan or MRI with contrast because the contrast media is not available. That all has to come back onshore, even if it costs more. Hmm. And the thing that I, I think is... Uh... A good thing that came out of the pandemic that needs to continue is telehealth. Yes. You know, telehealth allows you know people to use the technology of today uh, to do screening physicals, to answer questions, to um, actually see your patient that you're talking to, and, and physicians ought to be paid for that. Uh, and it should not be um, you know a big problem for insurance companies or Medicare to do that on a continuing basis. It should be a part of healthcare in the future. And to have it active and a normal part of healthcare in the event of a pandemic or an epidemic makes a lot of sense so that you can talk to people in their homes about how they're treating whatever it is that is, uh, you know, the infection that's rolling around in that part of the country at that time. So, you know, I, I think that's a very positive thing that's come out of the pandemic and something that should certainly be continued. Yeah, I, I would, if, if, I, if I may share my commentary on, on the points that I most appreciated in that section and John, you actually already mentioned it. It was the burnout piece. It was right at the beginning of this episode here, which that, you know, I felt that personally as a pharmacy resident at an independent pharmacy during that time and doing testing and vaccines. And yeah, I mean, that that was it was tough. And, you know, that's not that's one section. So you think about nurses in the ICU and medical doctors and other areas, physical therapists, you know, really, there wasn't a, a profession that was not touched by this pandemic. So I think that was a, a point that stuck out to me. And then the telehealth ad, I'm glad you mentioned that because because I also agree with that. I think that's I think that's crucial and needs to stay. Did you have something to add, Ed? I saw you. Well, you know, I was um, based on uh, what you had just said, Eric. I was reminded of uh, articles reviewed about uh, long term care workers who are uh, essentially uh, nurses' aides, and um, in the peak of the pandemic. The turnover rate for them was 141 percent. Right, and the reason for that, you know, is they they make between 15 and 20 dollars an hour. In normal times, they care for four or five patients in a day, and um, they were being asked to care for 20 patients in an eight-hour shift. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, things like that also need to be corrected and dealt with and procedures need to be in place to support the people who deal with the long-term term care people on a regular basis, especially during an epidemic or a pandemic. Yeah, just to add to that, uh, because of their low uh, wages, in many instances, the CNAs work several jobs. So what we saw, at least here in New Jersey, in the early stages of the pandemic, was that much of the community spread came from uh, uh, the poor woman who was working two jobs just to try and support a family because she got picked up the infection at nursing home A and went, went to do another shift at nursing home B and was a, was a carrier at the time. Yeah. And this made me think of another point that, you know, is also something that I can see firsthand, you know, in, in the healthcare system, just working in, in hospital settings as a pharmacist. But, you know, if you, you mentioned the, the pay. And so, you know, and I'm not a healthcare hospital administrator, but but you look at some of these jobs where, you know, they're very important for the hospital to run and they're getting paid, you know, let's say 12 to $15 an hour for X job, whether it's whether it's maintenance, whether you're, you're a technician of some sort in, in surgery or whatever. But do you think some people look at that and say, well, this is not necessarily my calling or profession. This is a job to me. You know, I didn't go to medical school for four years and then did a fellowship and I didn't invest all that time. So if I can make more money going and being a barista at Starbucks, I'm going to do that. Like, right. is there is there a way that we can mitigate that problem? Because I think I think we're seeing a lot of that in healthcare with people that they realize they can make more elsewhere. It's less stress. They're not having to worry about killing someone potentially. And, you know, maybe their maybe their life and happiness is better in, in a job like that. Yeah, we've seen reports of uh, folks going to work for McDonald's because then they don't have to slap bedpans. Yeah. They're earning more and uh, less exposed to infectious diseases. Right. Employers today are competing for employees more than they have in the past. People have left the workforce. Um there are 6 million open positions one way or another in the United States. Um, I think the recent report was the unemployment rate uh, for people seeking employment is 3.8%, which is an extremely low, low number and a high number of jobs. We're almost back uh, to the number of employed people that we had before the pandemic. So uh, I think it's normal in our society for uh, people to move to jobs that uh, they're either passionate about or they can make more money or or, or provide them a better, um, you know, life experiences for their families. Right. Uh, and that means that uh, hospitals and institutions that care for people need to assess how do they attract people to the jobs that keep the hospital clean and keep the hospital running and, and make, uh, you know, uh, make food for the people who are in the hospital or, or work there, whatever. All those support services will need to think about uh, well, how do we hire people that want to actually work here and how do we compensate them in a way that would make them want to make this a career as people have done through the years uh, before them? Yeah. And it, it brings to mind a past guest of mine had this leadership perspective that kind of tackles that in a way. And that's if someone is doing, you know, a lower level job, so to speak, on a, on a small scale to get that in their mind of of the impact that they're having is you're you're not cleaning bedpans, but you know, you are saving patients' lives by doing that. You know, if you don't do that, then we can't clean the room to get the next patient up here that needs treatment. You know, if you're in the pharmacy and, and you're a technician labeling a, a bag with a drug in it, you might think I'm just, you know, I'm on an assembly line or something and I'm, I'm not really doing a whole lot. Well, you know, you're, you're actually, you're bleeding to the overall mission of your hospital and you are saving patient lives and promoting health. So I think 
maybe some of that comes from from leadership, but I think, I mean, that's a tough problem to tackle if you're in healthcare, if you're an administrator, if you're listening right now, you, you can shoot me an email and tell me how difficult that is and, and tell me that I'm full of crap. But <laughs> any other thoughts on that? Otherwise, I do have one other piece from the book that that I really liked as far as a lesson. Okay. This is, and this is just kind of spitballing here, but really, I've always been curious about why we are not talking more about China and how this thing started. Because I think initially they said it was something in a, in a, in a wet market and something with a bat. And then later on, it was like, it, was there a lab? And then that misinformation thing, it's like, oh, is this just, you know, which party is trying to sway me one way or the other by saying this? But now really, like we're, we're in 2022 now. So we're past two years from when it started. Like, why are we not looking into more of what happened there? Like, is China at fault in a huge way for this? Or what do we do? I don't think we'll ever see a conclusion, a conclusion on that. Although all of the evidence points clearly to a corner of the uh, wet market in Wuhan. Uh, the New York Times did a very, very extensive uh, piece on that. I think it was about six months ago, mm-hmm. where they actually, uh, what you need to understand is that in Wuhan, uh, that wet market is about three or four miles away from the laboratory. Uh, now, uh, fiction writers love to write about outbreaks and leaks from labs and whatnot. Uh, but let's face it, there are tremendous precautions being taken when you're dealing with uh, uh, deadly viruses. Uh, the Times article actually, because they did contact, tra- contact tracing in Wuhan, uh, really pinpointed the origin of uh, several infections right to that corner of the of the Wuhan market. So f- to me, that's conclusive. Uh, I don't know whether the general public will ever agree to that, uh, but China, to its detriment, refused to cooperate with the World Health Organization at the beginning of the outbreak. Granted, they reported it New Year's Eve 2019, we got the word, but then they would not cooperate with the World Health Organization in terms of an investigative team shortly thereafter. There was a study that was done by a Chinese uh, scholar named Zhao Zhao uh, from 2017 to the middle of 2019 at the Wuhan market that was suppressed. And that also indicated that many of the animals being sold in the wet market uh, were infected you know, some of the names of the animals are, uh, I've never seen them before, but apparently uh, that was probably the source of a zoonotic transfer. Any other thoughts on that, Ed? Uh, relationship with China, uh, post, uh, you know, infection that spread around the world, um, is also an issue that I think needs a lot more study. Uh, the issue about the um, supply chain that John uh, pointed out with respect to medical devices and the supply chain in general. You know, um, we need to think about um, strategy uh, in uh, international trade related to healthcare, as well as probably other uh, areas of our economy. And, um, you know, there, we, we need to uh, vertically integrate um, the manufacture of these critical items in the United States um, so that we have them when we need them uh, in, in the dire times like we had. You know, um, when you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, um, in the hospitals that were being uh, challenged by the number of patients in uh, in the New York uh, market, uh, they were they were uh, developing methods to ultrasound not ultrasound ultraviolet light clean masks. Right. 
right. so they could use disposable masks 15 or 20 times because they couldn't right. get any. You know, so um, I think it's a combination of things. Certainly, there's the science part that uh, John was just talking about, but there's also a, uh, an economy or a, a part of this about uh, how do we develop things uh, or systems or strategic plans that allow us to have the stuff, products that we need when we really need them. Right. Right. Yeah, perfect, perfect. And everybody listening right now, once you get their book, once you own your copy of their book and you're reading it, Pay specific attention to when you get to, it's page 131. That's when those lessons start. And you'll know a little bit more details about what we're talking about here. But but I think that section really stuck out to me as a really important section, thinking forward as far as what, what we need to prepare and do. And hopefully there's some people that, that hold leadership positions in our country that, that can heed some of that advice, because I think that's, we need to have real change happen uh, to that point. But I, I want to now just switch gears a little bit. So we've We've talked a lot about the pandemic as a whole and, and what to do. You know, hopefully you've learned some some pieces of advice that you can apply to your own life here. But I really want to talk to John now from from a success standpoint. So Ed, we got to do that on episode 35. So please offer commentary when you see fit. But John, I've got just a couple questions kind of talking about just what you view success to be and, and what keeps you driven and really the overarching theme of this podcast. So Starting off, what, what is your definition of success? Uh, I've been very blessed in my career. Early in my career, I had a, uh, a boss who uh, we talked about several times. When we talked about success, he reminded me that success is a journey, not a destination. So here I am, age 83, still on the journey. Uh, definition of success, I was... A working class kid grew up in Jersey City in a tough neighborhood, went through 13 years of parochial school, grammar and high school uh, with the nuns. Uh, people talk about nuns in your six, but I was blessed by, uh, I'd say, nine out of the 12 were excellent teachers. But we had a teacher in high school who taught English and religion uh, to a bunch of inner city kids. Uh, she not only gave us, instilled a, a love of the English language, which uh, brought me to, uh, I'm a very good writer, as Ed will attest, uh, but she also made things simple for all of us. What she taught us, and it, it, this is what drives me every day, says it doesn't matter in life how much wealth you amass or how powerful you become, but when you approach the judgment seat, you're only going to be asked two questions. Question one, did you do the best you could with the skills, talents, and abilities that I gave you? Most of us could probably answer yes to that. Question two, did you work to make the world a better place for my people? That's my passion. It drives me every day. Uh, we've gotten a little bit closer over my lifetime, but nowhere near close enough to universal access to quality, affordable health care for every American. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, very clear, succinct driving force that keeps your inner clock ticking towards that success. I I love that answer, John. I really do. Ed, this is your chance. Do you have anything you'd want to change with your answer that you gave on episode 35? No, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with what I said then. You know, and I agree with John. I think success is a journey. Uh, I think um, you, you become successful when you follow your passions to accomplish those things that you care about. And um, if you do that, um, success is more than a number, and, and it's more than a win or a loss or a profit or a loss. It's, it's really 
uh, your ability to um, trans uh, translate your passion into something that's reasonable that works and and will make a difference. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's really important for for those of you listening with, you know, how has your definition changed? Because I know since starting the show, my definition has shifted, and as I mentioned in a previous episode, you might recall that, you know, metrically success for me at the beginning was really like some sort of position or title or certain amount of, of dollars tied to, you know, if you are a CEO with X amount of dollars, you can clearly say that person's successful, but that's really not the case. I mean, you, we got to strive for happiness and health. And that kind of goes back to your book. I mean, what, what really matters is, is are you helping people live better lives and are you benefiting the world by what you're doing? So I think the, both, both those answers, I think really, really tie into, you know, shaping my definition as well. And I do have one, for, this is for both you guys now. So this is recent with the podcast. So introducing the success portfolio, I've had a few people answer this, but basically the way I see it is an investment portfolio is your compilation of investments that lay the foundation for your financial goals. So a portfolio, if you're trading and in investments, you'd call that a portfolio. I really want to discover how successful people invest in themselves and build the foundation for their success through their success portfolio. So I'm looking at are there three specific skills, habits, traits, mindsets? What would you say are the three most important things to have in one's success portfolio? You know, I thought that was a very interesting uh, question. And I, I thought about it. And for me, in a success portfolio, the most important thing is a positive and useful network. Uh, as you build your career, you... You know, all of us are on a journey through our lives as we as we work and, and uh, uh, try to you know make a living or, or whatever it is we, we do with our lives. And the network of people uh, that you uh, build through your life um, it is an incredible resource. Uh, and to me, that is the basis uh, of for the idea that you put forward of a success portfolio. Uh, the network. The second thing is how to use it. You know, uh, you need to, uh, you know, call on your network when you need help and be there to help others in your network when they need your help. And that might lead to, um, you know, a better friendship. It might lead to uh, collaboration. Um, John and I have been a part of the same network for a long time. And I believe in part that led to our collaboration. Yeah, I'll agree with that in terms of networking. Uh, uh, when I left the Deloitte Partnership in 1986 to start my own business, uh, I began communicating with clients, potential clients, customers. Uh, in the 80s, it was a six-page newsletter going out every other month through a large mailing list. It was a self-folding, self-mailing, uh, where I would talk about some of the tech, technical regulations that were forthcoming and then give my own comment on it. In the 80s, that morphed into a blast faxes uh, with a quirky cover sheet where uh, the content of the facts was the technical uh, regulation and the quirky comment, uh, the quirky face sheet had my own comments on what they needed to think about in that regard. In the, uh, the 10 years later, it was all e-blasts. And uh, today it's the three minute read uh, where we summarize articles and provide people with our perspectives. In terms of keeping in touch with the network, one of the things that I've found very useful, and that's where the newsletter and the communications piece comes in, is that I've always made sure that before I contact a, a 
client or a colleague, I have at least two things to discuss with them. Because I strike out on the first, you know, all of a sudden you're sitting there saying, oh, what next? Uh, so it, it's just showing that you reach out, that you care for them. It helps to have an attitude of gratitude. Uh, you uh, share credit, hog the blame, those kinds of things. Um, you know, I've got a, a, a series of about 12 management managers that have served me well over the years. Uh, some of them are kind of quirky. Some of them I learned from my mom That's uh, as, a, yeah. as a kid. You know, I'm sure you, you've got some of those too. But uh, that's all very helpful in, uh, in reaching out and maintaining a network and uh, letting them know you care. Yeah, and I think an important piece to, to touch on here too is that we're talking about positive traits and positive habits here. We're not, if you, if you invest in yourself in a negative way, you'll see those negative returns. And, you know, right. to compare it to the stock market right now, I mean, obviously you can't always win in financial investments, but I think you can always win in success investments if you are doing the right thing. So if you are building your network and you're trying to give more than you're trying to take, you're going to create that, that relationship where people are going to want to give back to you and, I, I think that's I think I think that really ties it well together. It's 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 inspiring to hear what your answers are based on the amount of experience you've had professionally as well. As you shared uh, with me pre-interview, you have uh, you like to say you have about a hundred years of healthcare expertise between the two of you. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of a cool kind of a cool fun fact about both you guys. But yeah, in short, I I I think we did a really good job looking at the pandemic. Hopefully, those of you listening have some thoughts, have some questions, have some feedback that you can share with me, but also if you want to contact either John or Ed, what would be the best way to do that for you guys? Do you, is there, do you use email or social media? If, if a listener wants to contact and reach out to you to learn more, how would be the best way to do that? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and there's also an email address. It's jjdalton1 at verizon.net. And of course, you can reach both of us through the healingamericanhealthcare.org uh, website. Ed? You can uh, email us at info at healingamericanhealthcare.org. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm also available, at, uh, ed at medilinkgroup.com is my uh, consulting email address. Um, you know, and we're, we're happy to uh, entertain any question that someone might want or, um, you know, and certainly uh, if they go to our website, that's an easy place for them to connect to our newsletter or to learn more about our, our book and publications. Yeah, and I think I think the big call to action here, the the short and sweet version would be to subscribe to that newsletter. You know, $12 for a year. That's cheaper than when the book was on sale, that's less than half the price of the book when it was on sale. So if you're if you're if you're a short read and you want to you want to still learn something, I would highly suggest that. We'll obviously tag all that into the show notes as far as the website and how to get involved. And if you want to join the the Healing American Healthcare Coalition, you know, you can do that as well. So we'll we'll have that tag there for for people to reach out and and do that. And Ed and John, man, thank you so much for being a part of the Eric Mueller Show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And I look forward to looking back, you know, five to 10 years from now to think about what we talked about now and see what America's facing at that time and see, you know, have we learned, have we changed? So it'll be, it'll be good. Let's help us for the positive. Right. Thanks. Great meeting, Eric. Yeah. Thank you both. We'll be in touch. 